Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Douglas. Stuart. I'm Joe. I'm Mike. Greg. I'm David. I'm Michael. I'm Paul. I'm David Farley. Matt. Max. <coughs> Max. <coughs> yeah. What's up, Bob? Bob. Hi, Stephen. Jim. My name is Joe. I'm Cal. I'm Richard. David. Peter. David. My name is Dave. I'm Brad. George. Jeff. My name is Roy. My name is Jerry. I'm Tom. I'm Ed. Larry. I'm Clint. Francisco. Michael. Michael. Welcome everybody. Um, and I'll introduce Walt Kopi, who uh, was introduced to Insight Meditation in 1993 at Spirit Rock and attended his first residential retreat there in 2005. He's a graduate of both the Spirit Rock Community Dharma Leaders Program and the Sati Buddhist Center Buddhist Chaplaincy Program. Walt is a participant in the current Insight Meditation Society Teacher Training Program. He is a monthly sitting group for people in recovery in Berkeley and serves as a volunteer Buddhist facilitator at Solano State Prison in Vacaville. In addition, he is executive director of the Buddhist Pathways Prison Project. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like I just want to say Walt. <laughs> Didn't get to say my name. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great to be with you. I really uh, apologize for being a few minutes late. Um, I ended up having a really big day yesterday and was kind of wiped out. <laughs> um, and uh, I, with this Buddhist prison, Buddhist Pathways Prison Project, we had our first uh, big fundraiser yesterday. And so we brought in some uh, formerly incarcerated folks and we had a, a, an event um, all day at uh, the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City. And, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting, powerful day. <laughs> and then I came home, and I have a four-month-old-plus daughter now. <laughs> um, and uh, there's something called sleep regression at four months. <laughs> so, which I didn't know about, now I do. <laughs> so right when I fell asleep, at, like, pretty late last night, I feel this arm your hand on my arm, and I'm like, I don't care what it is, I just need to sleep. <laughs> and my wife is basically yanking me out of bed because she's exhausted. <laughs> so anyway, um, I was trying to squeeze some extra sleep in this morning. The real problem was thinking, um, I thought this started at 10, 
And then I saw, oh, it doesn't start till 10.30. I have lots of time. <laughs> um, anyway, just uh, very happy to be here and uh, trying to figure out the best place to start. Um, I had some communication with um, Tom, who uh, from the Sangha, who uh, mentioned that you're going to be talking about social action and that uh, Sister Mary Peter had come and spoke here a few, maybe a month ago, something. And I listened to uh, the sister's talk. It was really moving and uh, powerful, really um, kind of intimidating. I kind of felt like <laughs> I'm not sure what I have to offer. It's all out there now. Um, but uh, Tom just said if you could bring in, because you do various things, bring in what brought you to um, some version of social action that might be useful. And uh, so um, I thought I would tell a little bit about my story, try to figure out what can be useful. I um, it's really interesting. So I, um, I got into this, the IMS teacher training. I don't know if you're familiar with IMS. It's the Sister Center to Spirit Rock on the East Coast. Um, and somehow I got into their teacher training for to become a retreat teacher recently. I'm the only white male in the teacher training because they're trying to, they want a more diverse um, teacher base. And uh, they, you know, um, found all these wonderful teachers of color. And then at the end of it, they said, oh, maybe we should have one white guy in there, too. <laughs> I don't even know how that came about. Um, this is my version of the story, not the official. <laughs> um, and that's sort of... So anyway, somehow I ended up becoming the token white heterosexual male in this group. Uh, and... Um, and then I uh, got on a plane to fly for the first training retreat. And when I landed, I had a, um, some communication from my wife saying, I can't believe what's happening in Charlottesville. And so literally the, that was the day I flew there, was the day that all the stuff happened in Charlottesville. Well, I used to live in Charlottesville. I'm from a small town near there in Virginia. I went to Robert E. Lee High School. My great-grandfather fought in the Civil War and wrote a book about it called A Rebel Calvaryman. He was not on the uh, right side of that one. <laughs> the only good thing about his book is that the last line says, it is as it should be, talking about the outcome of the war. So I was like, I'm glad he at least threw that in. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, I grew up really in the middle of all that stuff and uh, it wasn't, I had to get out of Virginia to kind of look back and say, wait a minute, I can't believe I went to Robert E. Lee High School. What was that all about? <laughs> like, they should have changed that name a long time ago. So, um, anyway, it's, um, it was really jarring for me that all that happened in Charlottesville, a place that I knew very well. And part of my story is I ended up um, finding out I was an alcoholic at the age of 21 and getting sent to a 28-day rehab in Charlottesville, Virginia, called Mountainwood, 
and which uh, no longer exists. So um, that set me on a journey. You know, I I don't know what would have happened to me had I not been, you know, found out I was an alcoholic and gotten sober at that age. But it sort of put me on this spiritual path that I probably wouldn't have been on otherwise. And uh, that was 1987, so it's been quite a journey, lots of ups and downs. Um, so I did the whole 12-step thing, I still part of that world, but um, somewhere along the way I realized I could be happier. It was kind of like I was living in San Francisco, going through a divorce, <laughs> uh, didn't have a job, and um, uh, it's a long story, but it was kind of a low point. <laughs> But in recovery, and I started to think, what, what's wrong with this picture? And uh, I had been introduced to Jack Cornfield's teachings at Spirit Rock and ended up going back out there, and they started talking. For the first time, I heard this thing about retreats, meditation retreats. I knew about meditation, but I hadn't really noticed that you could do these retreat things, <laughs> retreat experiences. So uh, in sort of a low point, I, I went on my first um, retreat. It was a five-day men's retreat at Spirit Rock with Jack Cornfield, Noah Levine, and uh, some other teachers. And that ended up really being a life-changing moment for me. Um, it was kind of like, this is what I've been looking for my whole life and just didn't really know what it was or where it was. And it was just... Um, I found I'm really good at doing nothing. You know, uh, bad Buddhist joke. <laughs> but uh, you know, learning how to just be rather than always doing stuff and, and trying to impress other people or whatever. But it's okay to just be, just breathe, just stop. Um, and then also, it sort of reconnected me back to um, maybe what I now see as what's really important, you know, um, interdependence with, with all, all beings and all people, and also just the whole heart opening thing. I think I went through a real heart opening at that time. Um, actually, the story there was, because uh, I remember that uh, one of the teachers at the retreat, Robert Hall, um, at the very end of the retreat said, okay, now I'm going to give everybody on the retreat a hug as like a last act. And, um, and I just at that time thought, well, that's weird. Why do we all... Because <laughs> he was just going to stand there we're all going to hug him. And so I had some resistance. And it was just interesting. Uh, everybody else seemed fine with it. They're all hugging him. And then I got up to him and it was like he knew that I had resistance and he just put his hand on my heart. Like, he didn't even try to hug me. <laughs> he actually stopped me and put his hand on my heart. And it was, something happened. It was really amazing. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but it was like, um, it just kind of broke down that last, there was like a couple bricks left in the wall around my heart, and he just like pummeled them over. And it was, some, I mean, I don't want to make too big of a deal out of it, but it was, it was a beautiful moment where I, uh, just kind of like, then I was really happy to give him a hug. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it's one of those things that you can't really put word, put into words, but it was a, it was a gesture that was very powerful. And uh, 
I went on another retreat after that, shortly after that, a 10-day retreat. And then when I got out of that, I had a, um, a call for a job interview with Spirit Rock. So I ended up working at Spirit Rock after my second retreat for seven years <laughs> in the communications department. Um, and what that was, that was just a great opportunity for me to sort of get an education and another way to be in the world and to also kind of uh, be up, you know, um, also to see the reality of this stuff. Because it's very easy to put Buddhist teachers on pedestals and things like that and just to see what's going on behind the curtain here. <laughs> and uh, nothing terrible, <laughs> but... Uh, just to get in touch with reality, I guess. Anyway, this is kind of a long way of saying that Jack Cornfield ended up really inspiring me in terms of social action because uh, I would see whenever something would happen, he would have his Monday night class, which has like three or 400 people, and he would automatically say, well, anything that goes into Donna Baskets today goes towards you know whatever is happening in the world right now that needs some support and um, I just it was a you know uh, it just kind of touched me I guess um, made an impact and so then uh, fast forward a little I um, was invited uh, I'm friends with Kevin Griffin who I know spoke here recently and uh he had invited me, I think, to be his substitute teacher at Spirit Rock for a, a Friday night a Dharma and recovery thing he does. And uh, at the same time, I got an email that Heather Sunberg, who I think also comes here, <laughs> uh, she was having some medical issues and needed some me uh, financial support for her medical issues. Not to, not to air her dirty laundry or anything, but that was a... Uh, um, anyway... Not that that's dirty laundry. Um, so, but, but the, I saw this email saying Heather could use some support at that time, and the first thought was, oh, I can donate the Donna for my thing at Spirit Rock to Heather. <laughs> and uh, so that's what I did. And it was, but what I just noticed was how great I felt just when I had that thought, even before I did anything. And then carrying through was really sweet. And then, you know, gave her a few hundred dollars that we raised and then even like a year later she emailed me just to thank me again for doing that, you know, it was such a positive thing <laughs> so it was like, I just really noticed how much benefit I got from this small act and of, of uh, some generosity, and the Buddha uh, as I understand, always taught generosity first and uh, so what's been interesting about this path of Buddhism is that um, whenever, you know, I don't always follow instructions super well, <laughs> but I've noticed that each time that I kind of follow what the Buddha seemed to be suggesting, and from, uh, as I understand it, it, it just really turns out to be very true. <laughs> you know, uh, like I, everything I've been able to check out has checked out beautifully with this practice. And, uh, so there's a lot more. Um, so then I also, uh, because I had been in recovery but didn't have the Dharma practice, I felt like I should 
I wanted to share that with as many people as I could that were in recovery so that maybe they would get it sooner than I did and it took me about 15 years in recovery to start really practicing more seriously and um, so I started the, the uh, Dharma and Recovery Group in Berkeley with uh, Kevin Griffin's help and blessing and that's been a great learning experience met some wonderful people through that um, and then I got an email one day about looking for people to help in the prison do something similar and I thought well there's probably there have to be a lot of suffering addict alcoholic types in prison and I'll go in and see see what I can find there um, so I volunteered to do that and I've been doing that for about three and a half years or something um, and it's been a really what's interesting is similar to even the generosity for Heather or whatever it's like I get maybe just as much or more out of it as anybody else does <laughs> so it's very mutual <laughs> um, and mutually beneficial shall we say and BP3 the this is the Buddhist group that I'm now somehow I ended up the executive director because they <laughs> mainly because they needed somebody to do all the administrative work and they <laughs> roped me into it somehow but it's it's a it's a great thing to work towards um, but we have a new video that we we had the world premiere yesterday at our event <laughs> um, and uh, in the video we um, the founder, this woman named Diane Wild, says that she has ten people that she met inside the prisons that she considers her teachers today. So, you know, I learned just as much from them as they could possibly be learning from me. <laughs> um, and also, again, it's that thing about checking out reality versus how you imagine it's going to be in prison. Because somehow it's not what I imagined, even though it kind of is. <laughs> And there's plenty of barbed wire, that's for sure. And, you know, um, all the, uh, it looks like I imagined it, but the, the people I'm meeting are not who I imagined, you know? <laughs> that's kind of the interesting thing, I guess. And, the, uh, um, and like I, I like to say, there is no us and them, you know? We, um, so, it's been a moving, or you know, uh, it's been a um, a great learning experience for me to do this, to do that work. And um, just trying to remember. So then, in there's a couple things. There's something I really like that. Uh, was in the Inquiring Mind. Are you familiar with that? It, it, it folded, but it was a Buddhist magazine out of Berkeley. Um, and Wes Nisker interviewed Gary Snyder in, uh, I think it was a, the Earth-based theme of that F issue. And so Wes Nisker said something like, the way we live in the modern world is certainly causing great harm to other species of life. How do we extricate ourselves from this often unconscious violence? And Gary Snyder says, well, first of all, don't feel guilty. There's no point in feeling guilty about our harm in regard to the world. You don't, need to, you don't beat yourself up because you didn't do so well. Instead, 
you say, I'll do better next time. But there's something really powerful about that. Don't feel guilty. Um, but And what I got out of it, although I couldn't actually find it in the article, which is interesting, because what I remembered was that his point was, don't, don't act, don't do the um, social action, if you will, out of guilt, but do it out of love. You know, do it because you care. Um, get in touch with with that aspect, not out of guilt. Um, and that seemed important. And then he also later in that article said something else. Um, he talks about you know classic Buddhist teaching: recognize impermanence. He said because everything is impermanent. I'm going to build my house so that that it lasts a while. Do do good work. And I hadn't really necessarily, you know, a lot of times that's not how I, I view the teaching on impermanence, but I really thought that was interesting. Because we know it's impermanent, we build our house so it lasts a while. Um, anyway, let's see. The, um, there's uh, another thing I saw online recently, and it was an article from Lions War magazine written by uh, Mushim Patricia Aikida. Did anybody see that? And uh, it was, she said it was a true story that I think all U.S. Buddhists should know. And I thought I would share it with you. I uh, thought it was moving. She said, back in 2000, I was a guest editor for the Buddhists of Asian Descent in the USA issue of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship's journal, Turning Wheel. And uh, in it was an article titled, Internment Camp Buddhism, Memoirs of Reverend Koetsu Morita. And... Uh, one of the stories in the article goes like this. Reverend Morita, a Soto Zen priest from Japan, was arrested in Hawaii on December 7, 1941, the day Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese. He was relocated to numerous concentration camps. It's good to remember that these were concentration camps, uh, she says, not just internment camps. Starting out in Sand Island, Oahu, Hawaii, in that camp, there were 30 Buddhist ministers of various Buddhist sects from all over the island of Oahu. When Buddha's birthday came around on April 8th, Reverend Marita recalled the ministers wanted to celebrate the traditional Hana Matsuri. Like the other ministers, he had only the clothes he was arrested in, and they were filthy. He had only one pair of pants, so he couldn't wash them. What would he wear in the meantime? Evidently, Reverend Marita, this is in parentheses, wouldn't get a change of clothing until his family was able to send him more pants months after his arrest. Um, he had no belt either, so he used a piece of rope from a tent on Sand Island. Um, and in 1977, uh, in his memoirs, Reverend Marita wrote, but no minister had a robe with him except for Bishop Kubokawa, Kubokawa of the Jodo sect, who was asked to officiate 
because he had been arrested in his robes. We chanted the Heart Sutra, and Bishop Kobakawa delivered a Dharma talk. And in the talk he said, your participation in those filthy clothes can be likened to the Buddha's teaching of the lotus blooming in the mud. Let us hold on together, praying that peace arrives as soon as possible. And may we be guided by the Buddha's teachings and life of peace. To this day, I can still hear the voice of that nearly 80-year-old priest. Your participation in these for those filthy clothes can be likened to the Buddha's teaching of the lotus blooming in the mud. <laughs> Just find that to be very moving and uh, you know, powerful image. Um, so let's see. I guess that reminded me of uh, Sister Mary Peter's talk to you all last month and how um, maybe there's a collective sense of waiting for peace to come again. <laughs> um, and I think uh, many of us may feel that way during these times. Uh, it's, I guess, again, the the um, teaching on impermanence that it's not going to however it is today it's not going to stay that way it's going to keep changing and I guess the question is what's my role in affecting that change and where to, what can I do to you know change it the way I would want it to go um, and I do think it starts with me educating myself and, um, you know, tearing the walls down around my own heart, as this practice has certainly helped me to do. Uh, it's hard to judge how, how we are, judge ourselves in these ways, but I just know I've had certain experiences that have been very um, helpful. So, tempted to just say, I mean, very curious to know. So I'll just, just kind of, I'll say a couple more things. Um, unfortunately, I lost my notes from yesterday, but uh, I. So we had this thing, I heard this. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> we had this uh, yesterday at the prison benefit that we had. One of the former, formerly incarcerated guys there told his story, and uh, it turned out his family of origin. Um, very difficult, I can't remember, I don't want to tell his story per se, but at the, end of the, at the end of the talk he basically said all the harm he caused was because really he just wanted to be loved. 
and you know he didn't get that growing up and um, and what I realized was there was a lot of grief from his early childhood that he had never dealt with or the way he dealt with it ended up you know uh, for a while being a life of crime and then being sent to prison for 30, 40 years and there he you know went through a trans- transformation but that thing of like undealt with grief really stuck out to me that um, when we when we try to run from pain we end up causing more harm than we, if we just learn to sit with it and face it and, and uh, work with it and uh, just all the things that could be avoided if we <laughs> were able to do that better but that's what our mindfulness practice can can give us I wish I could I had a quote but I've yeah it doesn't seem to be here um, and then uh, another person that used to be in prison spoke and it felt like that was a similar story you know it was like when all three people told their story and it felt similar that um, uh, it just reminded me of that book that came out not long ago uh, Johan Hari it was about addiction he said he kind of went all over the world studying addiction and talking to addiction experts and at the end of the day he summed it all up he said the opposite of addiction is not you know, sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection. And uh, and even one of the guys, the first guy I mentioned, uh, who spent 30-some years in San Quentin, he even said he felt so disconnected growing up. You know, so disconnected. And um, so I think that's very powerful and... Um, so I think this you're, you are lucky to have this Sangha here, such a beautiful place to come and connect. And just doing that seems very powerful and important. And then, But then to take that spirit out into the world in terms of social action could also be very powerful. I don't, you know, it's hard to know what, how that would manifest exactly. But I know that I've done um, some activism around climate change, with other Buddhists, and there was a, a uh, an action in Oakland um, uh, last year or something, I think last summer maybe. And uh, we first we got there kind of early, and it's near Lake Merritt, or, and we um, we just sat in the grass and meditated for 30 minutes or something. Um, it was like 20 of us. It was not an impressive looking group by any means, but. All these people would wander by and just kind of look at, like, what's going on over there? <laughs> but it kind of gave people pause, and it did feel important. It, it felt like a real contribution. I mean, in some ways, we're just sitting there in the grass, but we were uh, very peacefully sitting there, <laughs> uh, coming back to our bodies, hearts, and minds. And uh, it, it was an interesting experience. felt good. And then uh, I know in the prison prison I, I go to, which is Solano Prison in Vacaville, I met a guy who's been into a lot, he's been in a, a Buddhist for quite a while in prison, he's been, they kind of move him around a lot, and uh, he said whenever he gets to a prison, he can tell when he's on the yard whether they have a, a Buddhist meditation group there or not, 
that there's a little sense of peace somehow that's not if there's it's just if it's if there isn't a group there's just chaos or something but if there is a group there's some sense that he feels he can so who knows you know but I, I do think that there's a contribution being made not that we don't act as well but that we shouldn't discount uh, the practice of you know meditation as well certainly it helps me uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh says you know if you get really angry do not act out of the anger and if all you can do is lay down until it kind of passes then do that <laughs> and I found that I can't say I always follow that advice but I thought that was really interesting he also says to treat your anger like a, a newborn baby which resonates with me more now. <laughs> um, but, uh, and it's sort of actually more true than, than I realized, because <laughs> newborn babies are not always that easy to deal with, <laughs> nor is anger. Um, so anyway, I think I will stop here, and then I know we'll have some discussion, open it up for any questions or comments, or I'm sure there's... A, a lot of wisdom in the room. So thank you for your kind attention. Anybody have any thoughts? Yes. Can you describe in greater detail just what it's what you do when you go into a prison? Um, sure. Whether I mean, you just do meditation and leave, or do you work intimately with some of the people there? Uh, well, what we do is we establish sanghas like this in the prison. So, um, so we uh, go in every week. Uh, at Solano, we have two groups on two different security levels, level three and level two, and uh, they have they have a right to inmates have a right to uh, religious services. So we hold Buddhist services in the chapel once a week, basically, um, but. It feels a little subversive at times because we we emphasize really teaching them the the nuts and bolts practices of you know meditation and moment to moment mindfulness and hopefully some emotional intelligence kind of stuff. Uh, but what what we really end up doing is creating a safe space within the prison confines where people can just come and kind of breathe easy for a, an hour and a half and. Also, where the whole prison politics, I feel you know blessed, but we, I don't know how we've done this, but it just feels like they don't, they aren't an issue while we're meeting, you know, at our during the Buddhist groups, we have everybody's there, and there's no feeling that you know it doesn't, it feels like a sangha, but I know when they go back out on the yard, they kind of re-separate a lot of the time, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so it's interesting that way. And even um, they say, because we have day-longs twice a year as well for these groups. Uh, and uh, one group in particular, the, there's a couple guys, Cambodian guys, uh, who cook for the whole rest of the group. And they all eat together. And they say that would never happen in the rest of the prison. This is the only place where we can all, all eat together. Mm -hmm. and so it's very... You know, 
touching to see that. And Do you give Dharma talks? Or oh, yeah, we give Dharma talks and have discussion. We have a whole thing. We actually, what we did yesterday, we had a day long, is we kind of um, uh, reproduced what we do in prison for at least the morning. So we have a whole kind of routine that we do. We meditate for 20, 30 minutes. Um, well, first of all, we do movement. So we usually have a, some kind of qigong or yoga and then we do the sitting period. Then we um, go around the room and have check-ins, and each person is invited to say their their name and just how the meditation was for them or how their week is going. And that's always maybe my favorite part because you get to hear you know what's going on for them. Um, and they, uh, you know, the more you get to know them, the more they end up being willing to kind of share. And uh, and then we give a talk and then have some discussion if we don't run out of time. And then sometimes we do a little bit of chanting, things like that. They enjoy that. So, yeah, it's pretty standard in a way. But, you know, so. And uh, so we're in about 20 prisons in California. And uh, it's all kind of grassroots volunteer. I'm, I get paid a little for being executive director, but I don't get paid to be a volunteer in the prison. And that's where I start, you know, that's definitely where my passion is. But, um, so, yeah. Just, I'm just wondering, are there any metrics of impact? Yeah, that's a great question. I wish that we had um, a better way to do that. I mean, what we do is when we do the day longs, we hand out a questionnaire at the end and just with about five questions, and the questions indicate very positive results. Um, you know, the it's more there's it's pretty hard to quantify without bringing in like scientists, neuroscientists who could like study their brain waves or something, um, which we have not done. And there aren't really very many studies that I can find. I was just online looking for some. There was one study done in. Uh, Seattle, Washington a few years ago. For, I think it was a Glinka Vipassana group taught some inmates and they they, it indica- they said it indicated good results, but nothing very quantifiable. But I, I mean, I've had somebody, you know, we do circles uh, and everybody gets a chance to say something and one time a guy said I assume, you know, uh, an incarcerated man said, um, I assume you people are doing this to make a difference in people's lives. And he said, I just want you to know, you are making a difference in people's lives. <laughs> somehow the way he said it, with this powerful conviction, was like the most moving thing I could have heard, you know? So that's my, you know, scientific study for you. <laughs> Is it just, uh... But also, we, you do see it over time. I mean, you see people kind of go from just being a little foggy um, and and not willing to look you in the eye a lot of the time or uh, or just seeming kind of uh, confused or something and then after a while it's almost like the lights start coming back on I do think there's some neuro you know you could study this that there's probably some uh, brain circuitry be, being rewired over time, but I've seen people like start to just be more present. Um, and, and they talk about it, too. It's not just me. Um, but they, they even say, like, I feel more present, you know, and, and you can just see it in their eyes. So, 
Uh, one guy um, in particular really would never look up. So he would be, and, and he always passed. We'd go around the circle and he would always pass, um, never shared anything. And then uh, his grandmother, who really raised him, got really sick and he got busted for selling cell phones because that's a big thing in prison. So he got sent to the, uh, the whole, you know, solitary confinement. And so for, think, 30 days or maybe, maybe longer. Anyway, while he was there, um, and he was really suffering over his grandmother because he, he really loved his grandmother and he couldn't do anything to see her or help her. And at some point while he was there, sitting there alone, he kind of remembered the practice because he'd been to our group many, many times, but you didn't really get the sense that he was fully engaged. But he started practicing there kind of on the spot. And when he got out, he was a, all like a different person. Like he started, he would look at me and, you know, he would be looking up the whole time, which that alone was kind of jarring almost because I'm like, oh, wow. that's. But then also he wanted to share, which was amazing. And he ended up being like the first person to share for quite a while after that. So, so yeah, it, it can happen, you know, and that's really rewarding when you see that. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the talk, and uh, I've always found prison work is a great uh, thing to think about. There's a book in the 80s called We're All Doing Time. Right. I always like that book. But um, it reminds me of also of this quote, I can't remember who said it, but basically we are all living in prisons in our own minds, and most of us get busy decorating them rather than trying to get free. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And we talk about, um, well, Jacques Verdan, who does the, the started Insight Prison Project in San Quentin, talks about leaving prison before you get out of prison, you know, which is like really the same thing that we're, many of us are in a prison, whether we're in prison or not, <laughs> pointing to that. But then what's also interesting is that there are meeting guys uh, who, we're told you will never get out of prison because you know they have life sentences and uh, various circumstances. But then they free themselves while they're in prison. They do these programs. They really pursue it sincerely, and almost miraculously, they end up getting out released. And and this one guy, uh, Glenn, he was in San Quentin with Jacques, but he said, you know, and he was told you will never get out of prison. And uh, he said, when he went to the parole board, he said, I knew I was getting out because I was already free right here. And when he, and then when he, when he says it, you believe it. You know he, it's completely sincere. And so he went in there, and they, they were like, well, we're letting you go, sir. <laughs> you know? and so, yeah, it's amazing. I, uh, I, anyway, <laughs> how much time do we have? We still have some time. Um, I think in AA, I know they have Alcoholics Anonymous, they have a program where uh, people who get sober in prison, volunteers will go and take them to their first AA meeting. And I wonder if there's any way or capacity with your program to have volunteers come and take them to their first sangha or you know, take them to a meditation group that, upon release. Is that something you guys do? <laughs> um, it's interesting. Uh, they really discourage, so say I'm helping people in one prison 
they don't they discourage me having a relationship with people when they get out if I knew them when they were inside now that's kind of a weird thing because often they don't have a lot of support out in the world and we're the people that they trust because they've gotten to know us over time so we are constantly trying to figure out how to work around <laughs> some of the ways you know so I don't I don't know what I want to say right now but <laughs> um, well I can say we we did start an emergency fund that we will sometimes help people that we we know them and we know they have a specific need and it's like we had a woman at our thing yesterday who says she would be homeless right now if we hadn't given her a certain uh, you know um, donation to help her um, get a car so she could get to her job. She actually got a job, but she didn't have any way to get because she lives in a rural area. So, um, long story short, we're we uh, we really aren't supposed to like meet them at the gate, but um, but, but we help them as much as we can. <laughs> yes. Who makes it? The prison or the prison? It's not a law. You can't get support to the people once they get out. That's probably when they most need it. So that's where you guys come in. <laughs> uh, but no, it is a, it's an ongoing issue. So you kind of, it's, it's actually kind of the, where we are now. I mean, we are in, it's also interesting because we, we have these events where we invite them and we're somehow we're allowed to do that if it's an official event. And it turns out a lot of this is around not wanting uh, personal relationships to start up um, from this or also not wanting uh, people to take advantage of each other, either uh, you know, from either direction, I guess. So it's a little bit, it's a tricky topic, but um, we are. It is some something we're working on. Thank you. Okay. Um, yes. Running out of time. Go ahead. Um, so thank you, Walt. Um, you know, it kind of strikes me from hearing your story that this was not something that you set an intention to go do, it's, you sort of, I don't want to minimize it, but you sort of fell into it, or maybe just being open to things as they presented themselves. Um, how would you, I don't know what my question is, but no, I think it's I, curious, I get you know? It. <laughs> um, because we often think like, oh, we're going to set up this plan, and go do this thing, and it'll be a shift in direction for me, and, um, but that doesn't seem to be the case in what you've experienced. Is that true? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I mean, maybe like many people, I had a sort of fascination with prison in different ways. Uh, you know, all the prison movies and stories. and uh, So I, I did have just a, a curiosity of what is it like in prison in, in reality. But um, also my best friend, uh, I grew up in a small town in Virginia, and I had early in my life I had one best friend uh, named Hunt and uh, he never told the truth like he just always made stuff up and uh, you could never get a straight answer out of him and when you're a kid it can be kind of cute but uh, when you're an adult and you're still doing it it, leads, it turns out it leads to trouble or you know he ended up uh, in prison for various reasons I didn't I wasn't really still that you know, I still kind of try to keep tabs on him. But so in some way, and then he ended up being shot by the police later. Um, 
and uh, that's a whole other story. But um, so I do think that part of me is, you know, thinking about Hunt when I go into the prison. You know, that uh, on some level, and then also I spent. I, I, in my drinking career, I spent one night in jail, <laughs> but I woke up in a, that morning in that feeling that I couldn't just get up and leave, that there were bars and somebody had locked me in and I couldn't get out. That really made an impact on me. I really, I really didn't like that feeling, but also the people I met that were also in jail that day I had somehow assumed that if I ever woke up in jail, I would feel like I didn't belong there. It's hard to explain, but I just felt like there was some kindness between the the fellow jail people that morning. We shared breakfast before my parents bailed me out. I was young, and uh, that later that morning. But like, there was some weird camaraderie. And when I left, this guy said, "It." Uh, it does me good to see somebody get out of this place and shook my hand. And I never forgot that. It was a very, you know, my one experience behind bars, but that made an impact too. So I don't know. I think that there was some something along those lines. Now also, in being in recovery, I've met plenty of people who spent time in prison, you know, and are now in recovery. So I mean, I think that I had some reason to go <laughs> do this work wasn't uh, does that sort of make sense? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yes. Um so let's see, the host today. No. I'm the host. I'm George, I'm your host. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there are I brought some apples and some figs out there. Um, please help yourself. I'll be coming around with Donna Bowl. Suggested donation is ten dollars more if you, you are feeling in the mood. Um, some people meet at the door uh, to go out to lunch at 12.30. Um, what else? Oh, there's, there's thanks to Grisha, there's uh, water for tea. Uh, help yourself to that as well. And uh, can I make an announcement too? Uh, next Sunday, I'm a board member of the San Francisco Vegetarian Society and we have a vegetarian festival going on in Golden Gate Park at the entrance to the Arboretum at the County Fair building. I'll be there all day, so I won't be here. But please come after Sunday if you want. There's some postcards about that around the food. What time does it go to public? It's from 10 to 6, I believe. Thanks. Um, retreat, someone want to talk yeah, about Yeah, uh, the annual retreat is October 27th to 29th. Excuse me, Roger Pani, and I believe we have two spaces left. So if you're interested, I suggest you register sooner than later. You can see me. I'm there. You see Jerry, he's the uh, register. Okay. Any other announcements? Yeah. Okay. Um, so next week, we will have an all Sangha discussion, rather than small group discussions, um, which I'll be facilitating along with Gary Dexter to lead us in talking about engaged Buddhism. And um, we're kind of riffing off of uh, Sister Mary Peter's talk when she was here. And um, she closed with this, uh, sort of giving us some homework, which is kind of what this is all about. She said, um, you hold the powerful tool of liberation. As a sangha, what conversations are you having in the community about the topic of liberation from suffering? How are you sharing it and introducing people to it? How are you bringing it to people who don't look like you or necessarily walk in your neighborhood? 
They need it as much as anyone else, especially now. What collective actions are you taking as a saga to demonstrate that you flow through the world differently, that you value right mindfulness and right speech and strive for right action? You don't have to just huddle in a quiet room. This room is a rocket ship, ready to blast off and transform this community. Is GDF underutilized as a tool of liberation in this community? Can you maximize your potential as a group, and as a sangha, and as a seed? So that's uh, sort of what we'll be talking about in various forms next week. I hope you can make it. There are free books on the table out here, the coffee table, um, Queer Dharma. Um, Donna, you mentioned the Donna Bowles going around, and uh, your contributions go to pay the rent for this room, uh, honorariums for our speakers and teachers, uh, our work with Larkin Street, um, our mailing of our newsletter to the to Buddhists uh, in prison, gay Buddhists in prison, and um, so contribute what you can. And uh, I think that's it. Any other questions? Let's gather for the dedication of merits. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow, and may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, Please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.